and welcome to the season four premiere of Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. We've hit a milestone at Lady Justice and we would like to personally thank you for over 20,000 downloads. In this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss all things Constitution in honor of Constitution Week. Season four starts out with a bang with special guest Jeffrey Rosen, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Constitution Center, a highly regarded journalist and Professor of Law at the George Washington University Law School. In this episode, the Lady Justices and Mr. Rosen share their unique perspectives on the differences and similarities between our federal and state constitutions. Finally, in the lightning round, the Lady Justices and special guest Mr. Rosen share who their favorite former United States Supreme Court Justice is, what is or was their favorite law school class to teach, their go-to podcasts, and what they would serve each other at a dinner party. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to season four of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. I'm Chief Justice Beth Walker of the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, and I'm thrilled to be back with my friend, Arkansas Justice Rhonda Wood, for another season of our wonderful podcast. It's hard to believe, I can't believe it, that it's been three years since we ventured into the podcasting world, maybe stumbled into the podcasting world, to talk about our work and how awesome state courts are. And I'm pretty sure we're still the only sitting Supreme Court justices who have a podcast, so we we are absolutely dominating this field. Rhonda, how are you? Anything new? So I'm good. Everything's good in Arkansas. It is a lovely 102 degrees here in August, so I'm happy to be inside and recording the podcast with you all. But yeah, everything's great. Well, it is good to see you on Zoom. Social media followers are vast. Well, maybe not totally vast, but somewhat vast group, uh, know that I got to see Rhonda in person in Arkansas this summer on my little whirlwind tour of several states. And so I've actually been to the Arkansas Supreme Court, which I'm very excited about. So it was great to see you in person this summer, Rhonda. This is, this is our first episode. And as we do each season, our episode comes out on Constitution Day, which is, of course, September 17th. This year, it falls on a Sunday, but I'm sure our amazing producer will figure out a way to observe our annual tradition. And looking back in our history, just a moment, our first two Constitution Day episodes featured discussions about the wonderful world of state constitutions, which are, as you all know, who listen faithfully, gloriously different with very rich histories. We've had a lot of fun discussions. And then last year, We welcomed our very first male podcast guest, Chief Jeff Sutton of the Sixth Circuit, to talk about how state courts contribute to the development of constitutional law overall. This year, we are honored to welcome another very special guest, Jeffrey Rosen, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the National Constitution Center. Jeff, welcome to Lady Justice. We are so excited for you to join us on season four. Thank you so much, uh, Justice Wood, Justice Walker. What an honor to be the second male guest on Lady Justice and also to be here for Constitution Day. So happy Constitution Day. Happy Constitution Day to everyone, to all who celebrate. So let's just jump right in and start with a few highlights of our guest's very impressive bio. Jeff, you are a graduate of Harvard College, Oxford University, where you were a Marshall Scholar and Yale Law School. You've been at the helm of the National Constitution Center for 10 years. 
You're a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and a highly regarded journalist and author. In fact, uh, according to your bio on the National Constitution Center's website, uh, and I'll read this sentence, the Chicago Tribune named him one of the 10 best magazine journalists in America, and a reviewer for the Los Angeles Times called him, talking about you, of course, the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. So, wow, we're so glad to have you on the podcast. Can you tell our listeners, a lot of whom are law students, a little bit more about yourself and how your career led you to your current leadership role at the center? Well, that reviewer for the Los Angeles Times was actually my mother, so it's... Uh... <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> I'm just so lucky to be working with the National Constitution Center. It's a national treasure, and I never could have imagined when I was starting off that I, I would have the opportunity to be doing something so meaningful related to constitutional education. So when I was in college, I majored in English and government. And I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up, but I had this sense that I, my mission was to bring together liberals and conservatives and literature and politics. And I just didn't know how that was going to happen. So I went to law school because uh, I couldn't think of anything else to do, but I loved to write and to read and to learn. In law school, I had a sense that I didn't want to be a regular lawyer because I thought I wouldn't be very good at it, actually, as a practicing lawyer. And I decided in law school to be a journalist which again, my mom was daunted by because she invested so much in my education. But it was an intern for the New Republic magazine, which was a great journal of opinion back then. And it was the most exciting thing I'd ever done. It was a summer, summer internship and I was writing about the Supreme Court and uh, Justice Brennan had just resigned. And I thought, this is my mission. I'll be a journalist. So after clerking for, after law school, I, I was going to be a freelance journalist, and, and out of the blue, the editor of the New Republic, uh, Andrew Sullivan, said, come and be the legal affairs editor of the New Republic. We, we used to have Felix Frankfurter and Alexander Bickel, and we want to resurrect the tradition of writing about law, so we want you to do it. This was an extraordinary break. The New Republic was just a, a great uh, magazine and had this great tradition. And I was 27, and there I was with the chance to write about uh, the law for the New Republic. And it was such a privilege and so exciting. And there were many wonderful years of writing about the courts for the New Republic and other uh, places that I, I branched out to write about. I started teaching uh, at GW Law School early on in my career because, well, the, the real reason I, I started teaching is because I was very seriously going out with someone at the time. And her dad thought that being a journalist wasn't a good enough profession for his daughter that I couldn't take care of her. So he, he wanted me to get a job teaching in law school to kind of have a steady ba a base. And I'm very glad that he recommended that because it it's proved to be a wonderful base. And I also love teaching very much. So I, I taught at uh, GW Law and I was a journalist for about 20 years, very, very happy years. And then out of the blue, the, the National Constitution Center called and they were looking for a new head. And they just decided to take a flyer on me. Uh, they hadn't had a law professor before, and I'd never run anything in my life. So it was very much an experiment on both sides. But I fell into it. And like many of the great breaks in life, uh, it was just the luckiest thing that could be imagined. And that's what led me to the National Constitution Center. So I, I think that I secretly covet your job and, and want it. So I have all these questions, but I will try to re restrain myself. 
I wanted to wear my I love the Constitution t-shirt, I, I but I wear it on Constitution Day and I always take a picture that I got it there. It's the purple one with the heart. I don't know if they still sell them, but um, I got it several years ago there. Um, I loved visiting the center and my husband had to like drag me physically out of it um, there <laughs> because I just never wanted to leave. And so it's a fabulous, fabulous place. So I have a couple questions for you, but one, I guess, is if you knew this is where you're going to be, is there anything you would have done differently in sort of preparation for this particular job is at the center? You know, it is the luckiest job in the world. And I feel so fortunate to be in it. And I don't think so, because the most important thing to do is to read and listen. And I certainly have changed very much over the course of my career, because as a journalist, you know, I was paid to have opinions and I had all sorts of opinions and I wrote articles about how, you know, if only the Supreme Court would think like me, then they would have all the right answers the way, the way journalists do. And then in my current job, I'm, first of all, I'm not really allowed to have any opinions whatsoever because we're nonpartisan. I, I welcome, certainly- Welcome to our welcome world, to our <laughs> It is, it's, well, you, you're doing a very important service and of course you're, you have to be nonpartisan. Thing about the National Constitution Center is I do have the great privilege of hosting debates and conversations. And the most meaningful and you know uh, unique thing I do is host these podcasts and programs and classes that bring together liberals and conservatives. And my job there is just to ask questions and have an open mind. And I always find in these discussions that I can't have a informed opinion until after I've heard the arguments on both sides, you know, much as you do as judges, except these are these are about open current controversies and, and questions in history. So I suppose it's a long way of saying that learning humility, learning open-mindedness, the spirit that's not too sure I'm right, I definitely don't think I have all the right answers and I'm much more interested in listening to other people. Those were all things that I, I had to develop and, and now I get to, to do that every day. There's no better preparation for this than the incredible education I had. I'm so grateful to all of those amazing teachers in high school and college and law school involving not just political science and government, but literature and history and learning about the 18th century prose and, and the Puritans and, oh my goodness, all of these magnificent scholars and teachers who inspired me. That was the best possible preparation. And I'm so grateful to all of them. Well, oh, that's fantastic. You are uh, singing our song and particularly Rhonda's song, actually, because we we, talk, we have talked a lot about our educations and how particular seemingly unrelated classes sparked a skill we have now or an interest we have now. So that's that's really cool. I, I wonder if particularly your time as a professor probably really honed in your ability to bring in different sides and different perspectives, just because you hopefully you did that in the classroom and developing that skill. So I think that probably that was the perfect background to move into that role. Um, so tell us a little bit about the center. How did it start? How did it, what was the genesis of the Constitution Center? The genesis I can sum up best with the mission statement of the center, which I always recite at the beginning of all of our podcasts and programs to inspire myself and, and hopefully listeners. So here, here it is. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the U.S. Constitution among the American people on a nonpartisan basis. And that mission statement comes from the Bicentennial Heritage Act that Congress passed in 1988 as part of the Bicentennial celebrations for the Constitution. It created the 
NCC as a private nonpartisan nonprofit. So that means although we have this great congressional charter and this inspiring building on Independence Mall right across from Independence Hall with the most uplifting view of Independence Hall in all of America, we're, we, we are a private nonprofit. We get very few government funds and are uh, responsible for supporting ourselves through mostly private uh, philanthropy. But it was created by Congress with the three missions that we pursue today. We're first a, a museum on Independence Mall, the Museum of We the People with rare copies of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and programs for kids and live theater and all the inspiring exhibits that you talked about, including Signers Hall with the life-size statues of the framers. It's just the most incredible place. We're also a national civics education hub responsible for creating the best nonpartisan education material in America for uh, K through 12 kids and uh, learners of all ages. And uh, in addition, we are America's town hall that convenes programs and podcasts and videos to explore current and historic constitutional issues. And all of these amazing programs and initiatives are hosted on the interactive constitution. And I want listeners who haven't checked us out yet to go to constitutioncenter.org and just learn from this amazing online platform. We launched the interactive constitution in 2015. It's now gotten more than 70 million hits. It's among the most Googled constitutions in the world. And if you pick any clause of the constitution, you know, start with the first amendment is always a great place to start. You find the following content. First, essays by the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America writing about every clause of the Constitution, describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. And it's so inspiring to see those 80 scholars, each nominated by the Conservative Federalist Society and the Liberal American Constitution Society, with a thousand words about what they agree about, the First Amendment or the Second or the Habeas Corpus Clause, and then separate statements about what they disagree about. And modeling that agreement and disagreement through respectful dialogue is what we then try to do on all of our other content. So you'll find videos uh, teaching every clause of the Constitution with America's leading scholars. And it's just incredible that you can just learn so much from Robbie George and Heather Gherkin and, uh, oh, it's just any, the, the uh, Gordon Wood and and Annette Gordon-Reed all talking about different aspects of the Constitution. You can find classroom material for middle and high school kids. Uh, soon you'll be able to find our new videos that we're making for our Constitution 101 class with Khan Academy, which is the great platform that teaches math and science so well, and we're doing their first civics collaboration. And you can find primary sources and a new founder's library of texts that's selected by liberal and conservative historians about every era in constitutional history and so much more. So you can see how excited I am about all this, but it's just marvelous. It's, it's such a privilege to be hosting all of this incredible material. There's so much opportunity for deep learning and it's all part of fulfilling our mission as America's nonpartisan center for constitutional education. And so it sounds like your mission, I mean, obviously broad, obviously the lead the leader in this area in our country. Do you have a target audience? Are you are you trying to get to students? Are you trying to get to teachers? Are you trying to be everything to everyone? Who's your target audience? Well, in a sense, it certainly has to be learners of all 
ages from 8 to 80, because that's what the mission statement says, nonpartisan constitutional education among the American people. But of course, different content is directed toward different audiences. So the Constitution 101 class, which we just launched uh, last fall, is in particular for high school students. And we're working on a middle school version, which will make it more accessible for middle school learners. Our podcasts tend to have a more adult audience, but they're, I hope that everyone will check it out of any uh, age. And then the, the videos uh, skew uh, older as well. We're mostly mission-driven, so that just means for, for all of these platforms, we'll just bring together the best thinkers, ensure a diversity of views, and then put it out there. What's uh, the public's favorite exhibit in the museum? Is there a spot where everyone congregates and and like when you have a dinner party and everyone's in your kitchen, is there a place in the museum where you know everyone will be? Well, it's an incredibly beautiful kitchen. Um, and uh, I, right now on our Zoom, I have my fake backdrop because I'm not actually at the center at this moment, but behind me are the words of the First Amendment shimmering 50 feet high and 70 tons of marble above Independence Mall. We've just brought this from the Museum Building in Washington about a year ago. And I, I, it is the most inspiring constitutional view in America to be standing in front of the words of the First Amendment, gazing out on Independence Hall. It just takes your breath away. However, the most popular spot in the museum has to be Signers Hall. And I know that because it's right next to the First Amendment tablet. You can see Ben Franklin's hand is shiny because kids like to sit on his lap and rub his hand. <laughs> And James Madison's head has a shiny bald patch and so forth. And there's something so powerful about just seeing those men, they were uh, all men, in their actual sizes. Madison at 5'3", Washington at 6'2", by the, the largest man in the room, it, all speaking to each other. It, it humanizes them and brings them to life in an extraordinary way. So Signers Hall is, everyone place, is everyone's favorite place to be. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's truly amazing. It's, I mean, any, everyone, I just think it should be a requirement. Every American should visit Philadelphia and then see it all. But um, it's truly wonderful. But, and I will put a big plug because I know there's a lot of lawyers that listen as well to the podcast. And the website is a fabulous resource for when we're going out into schools and teaching that especially you're like, oh, it's third grade or sixth grade. And what am I going to talk about? It's a great little resource to go find some information and, and it's always changing. And so I do appreciate the center's um, education information out there. And so I, I use and borrow from it pretty frequently. So I do appreciate that. And the other thing is um, I want to talk to you because I know you're still a journalist and you still write. And Beth and I both avidly read the Wall Street Journal and other sources, and we usually alert each other when we read about something newsworthy and that we want to make sure the other one hasn't missed. And that happened recently, and um, you wrote an essay, a Saturday essay on August 4th, and that we paid particular attention to. And we're not going to weigh in on the issues in our nonpartisan world. For those listeners that haven't read, um, it it was about the Trump, you know, some of the election issues concerning the last election and then the current um, indictment issues. What I think that we both, I'm going to go ahead and speak for Beth because I do that and I think we're in this place of trust, but what I think we both really appreciated on your behalf, and I don't know that you were necessarily writing on behalf of the center versus personally, but that you 
emphasize the historic nature of reminding people that these issues in our times that, you know, I go out, Beth goes out, we speak to groups all the time, but there are people in our country that really feel that America is just at this crisis point and they're like, oh, what's happening to our country? And so it's valuable for people to get out there and talk and say, listen, our country has been through challenging constitutional crises before. Here's how we handled it. I mean, there were challenging elections before. There have been challenging um, indictments, challenging impeachments in our country. And here's how our country handled them in the past. And so I don't know if that was your your mission in writing that essay, but I, I know that we just both kind of felt that that's, that's valuable to keep putting that out there across the country. So is that sort of what was behind it? Absolutely. Exactly as you say. It is so important to learn from history. And when you dig deep, you learn, just as you say, that we've been through extraordinary challenges before, and you learn about how durable the institutions are, but also at times how, how fragile they've been, how, how important it is to have restraint on the part of the main constitutional actors so that everyone is committed to preserving the constitution and the rule of law. And in that piece, you know, I'm, I'm very careful about what I write about because I'm not allowed to be partisan at all, but I thought it was important to tell the story of the elections of 1800 and 1860 and to contrast the extraordinary series of events in 1800 that began with the Alien and Sedition Acts, where the Federalists led by John Adams are trying to shut down their opponents by making their speech illegal. And then that narrow election of Jefferson, which is made possible only because Hamilton, the last minute, favors Jefferson over Burr, his, his vice president. And then the incredible moment when, when Jefferson indicts Burr for treason. And it looks like, you know, today in some ways. And there, a lot of people said the indictment wasn't justified. And in fact, Chief Justice John Marshall, Jefferson's arch rival, decides that the re technical requirements for treason have not been met because the constitution requires an overt act and two witnesses. And he instructs the jury and the jury acquits Burr. And what's so significant then is that all the actors accept the results. Burr and Adams had accepted the election results. Jefferson accepts the verdict, and despite pressure, Congress in the end decides not to impeach Marshall, which a lot of them wanted to do, and as a result, the system survives. I contrasted that with 1860 when the Union shattered. The war came, as Lincoln said, because invoking the same arguments about nullification that, that some Jeffersonians had made during the Alien and Sedition Acts, the South seceded, and Lincoln insisted on preserving the Union. So it's it's a reminder, you know, history is both reassuring in the sense that we've been through some extraordinarily tough times before, but it's also very sobering and it's a cautionary tale that all of us, citizens, judges, Congress people, uh, you know, executive officials have a, have a responsibility to uphold the institutions, to be guided by a commitment to preserving, protecting and defending the constitution. And if we don't, and if, if one branch pushes too far, or if some actors are not committed to constitutional values, then there's no guarantee of success. So it's both it's it's both uh, sobering, inspiring, and it's it's a path forward. I, I commend you, of course, as as Rhonda didn't specifically say, but we do because you know talking about this history, talking about 
just explaining, even though, you know, folks like us who've been around for a while know all this, but the Constitution was designed for these kinds of controversies. They, they were remarkably forward-looking in, you know, the debates that were had. It's the same thing. I mean, they don't talk about Twitter or X or whatever it is now, but it, it you know, they had their rags. They had their same, you know, they had a different form of communication. It was the same idea, just not as quick. And I love, you know, the way that I think it's important for all of us to keep talking about it. You know, we sometimes are limited. You know, we have to be so careful about getting into specific cases and all of that. But the history is just a rich place. And I think so many opportunities are missed um, that you are absolutely taking up. So I commend you. Thank you so much. And we did want to ask you about the new First Amendment. Either, I don't know if it's a gallery exhibit, but we've been watching it develop on your website and we want to give you a chance to, to talk about that. But I think it's opening, uh, you know, around September, right before um, Constitution Day. Do you want to tell us what the center is doing? Yes, it's so exciting. This is the first permanent addition to the center's core exhibit since we opened in 2004. And it is a gallery's devoted specifically to the five freedoms of the First Amendment, uh, religion, press, speech, assembly, and petition. Um, it includes rare artifacts like Justice Louis Brandeis's case notes on the Whitney case, one of the greatest First Amendment decisions of the 20th century, Mary Beth Tinker's armband, that protest armband that led to the famous uh, school speech case, and so much more. There are video interviews uh, with people like Justice Kagan and Mary Beth Tinker herself, the plaintiffs in, in those cases. There are special areas for the five freedoms. There's a, a wonderful exploration of the connections between Jefferson's bill on religious freedom and Brandeis's opinion in Whitney. It's Brandeis actually sat down and tracked Jefferson's arguments for protecting speech one by one. And it's so interesting to see those connections. And then there are films of protests and and uh, Supreme Court cases and great moments throughout history. It, there's something so moving about the physical experience of being in a space devoted to the Constitution and to be able to pay tribute to the First Amendment in this gallery is just so meaningful. I can't wait for you to see it, uh, Justices, when I can show it to you, and also for listeners to come to Philadelphia and come check out the new First Amendment gallery. I saw on the internet that it opens on September 6th. Is that the day when it's open to the public? Fantastic. So it'll be open yes, when this indeed. podcast comes out. And we might be there that day. You never know. Uh, we might just show up. We've been known to to do that. How did you, you know, it, it's obviously important, uh, significant that you're adding in a, in a significant way to the museum for the first time since it opened. How did you decide what what was the run up to? Well, let's make a First Amendment. Um, I can't say I disagree with you, but huh. tell us a little, give us some background. Well, we hope to renovate much of the core exhibit, both leading up to 2026 and beyond. And we've kind of identified a series of big topics that we think we want to focus on in new galleries, including the First Amendment, America's founding principles, citizenship, the separation of powers, the Bill of Rights and the amendment process. So those are our areas. And we thought once we got a generous 
support from the Lilly Endowment actually was the was the lead donor and there are a bunch of other really generous donors. Why not start with the First Amendment? And that's what we did. What do you find, I was curious to ask, is the most common misunderstanding that the public has about the First Amendment, if there is one? Well, I well actually, actually hear the, the, that it was first because it's the most important. <laughs> I had the same I had the same uh, misunderstanding, and in fact, uh, I won't say which one, but a, a justice of the Supreme Court just came to the center and had the same impression. And we we cleared it up because at the center we have one of the original copies of the Bill of Rights that uh, was sent out to the states to be ratified, and that copy has not ten amendments but twelve. And the original First Amendment wasn't the First Amendment that we know and love. It was the one that said that Congress can't raise its salary without an intervening election. And also the the other one that was not ratified was the one that said that there should be one representative in Congress for every 30,000 inhabitants. If that had passed, then there would be 6,000 Congress people today. And it was actually the apportionment amendment that was the first and the, the um, salary amendment was the second. Those didn't pass. The apportionment amendment fell out of the picture and the salary amendment became the 27th amendment when it was ratified in, in 1992. So that's a long way of saying our first amendment was their third and it is first just because it was the first one that happened to be ratified. Funny how uh, uh, history winds that way. And of course, I have to ask you this um, since we do also talk a lot about state constitutions. We know that your emphasis, your goal, your mission is the federal constitution, is the U.S. constitution. But have you given any thought or observed in your discussions, you know, this interplay between the First Amendment of the United States Constitution and how each state has First Amendments? They all don't necessarily have five protected categories. They're all written differently. They're not necessarily first, not unlike the draft uh, or the original. Have you given any, have you had an opportunity to think about that at all? Yes. I'm so glad that you're paying crucial attention to state constitutions and you've had on great scholars of state constitutions like Judge Sutton. And, and, and we're such fans, devotees of state constitutions at the NCC. So we have a great feature on the website called the drafting table, where you can click on the First Amendment and all the amendments to the Bill of Rights and see the state constitution analogs that Madison cut and pasted from when he wrote the First Amendment. And we know that he didn't draft the language himself. He just dipped into Virginia and Pennsylvania and so forth. And it's so interesting to see that early language. I love the Virginia language about uh, religious freedom. It's something like that religion or the duty which we owe to our creator can be exercised only by reason and conviction and not force or violence. And therefore, all people are equally entitled to the free exercise of religion and the equal rights of conscience, something like that. But that language about the rights of conscience shows up in the New Hampshire Bill of Rights, which also de defines what an alienable right is so well. I'm, I, and you can see how excited I am about this. I, I, when I was in law school, I, I studied these state constitutions in a collection. At the time, it was the definitive collection was was Benjamin Schwartz's two volume set. But uh, Professor Kogan has brought all those sources together, and he allowed us to put them online. And it's so cool, and it's so exciting that you can just click on and see all these sources. So that's a way of saying you can see the revolutionary era state constitutions on the NCC website. I would love to 
put all of the state constitutions online in a searchable way. And I'm talking to folks who have begun this project. Remarkably, there, there's some efforts to do it, but it's not easy. Wouldn't it be exciting to be able to click on the First Amendment and see all of the First Amendment analogs in every state at any point in those states' history? So, you you, you know, both, both, both the current First Amendment protections in each of the 50 states, but then to go back and see the earlier language on each of those in a really searchable way, it would be incredibly revealing. To take just one example of how this evolves, some states have begun to add a privacy amendment to their First Amendment protections, kind of protecting autonomy of thought. California has, has done that. I, I just think it would be so helpful to be able to trace which states are doing that, what their language is, and so forth. So maybe we can, um, if, if you both like the idea, I know Judge Sutton likes it too, and there are a bunch of folks who are interested in doing this, let's try to put this on our homework list for projects for the future. Count us in. I'm going to volunteer, Rhonda, which I've done before and gotten great trouble for, but I think I can't here. Oh, you are like speaking my language, and I routinely call up other judge justices because we all know each other and on other state Supreme Courts because I will find, you know, Alabama, for instance, their constitution, their last version is similar to ours. You know, in the South, there's a lot of, you know, post-reconstruction constitutions. And so um, it's like trying to find we're on our fifth and trying to find out, well, why did we change from the fourth to the fifth? And then I find that we'll find the exact same language in Alabama's, but it took me forever to figure out that that Alabama was the one that was very similar to ours um, because there was nowhere to go search and find them. And you know, even recently I found an Oregon provision when I was like dying to find where something came from in ours and came from Oregon. Who thought Arkansas went and lifted something from Oregon, you know, um, when we were doing our last draft. And so there is just no, you know way to do that. And, you know, I think what maybe Kagan said, we're all textualists now, but, or, but I, I think we're all originalists now too. <laughs> and so, but you have to go back to, you know, everybody's going to the federalist papers, but if you really want to go further, you have to go to the state constitutions at the time. So anyway, you are like speaking my language. So I'm in, if you know anyone, if we're ready to go forward. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we are glad to help. We are huge fans, huge fans of, of, I think Chief Judge Sutton has done a great job of sort of explaining or, or putting that a little bit more history out there in a way that's consumable. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, it's all there if you dig deep enough and find the right places, but, and that's, what's so great about the, the your center as well is, you know, putting this on the internet, you know, the federal constitution to begin the references to, you know, the sources in state constitutions and continuing to do that is just fantastic. It, it is a great resource. Wonderful. Great. We will reconvene and try to make this happen. <laughs> we're, we're, we're solving all kinds of things. I actually, um, Rhonda knows this, but I, this summer had printed and I'll show you one. I decided those federal constitutions were so handy. I had the West Virginia constitution printed in little booklets and we're giving them out now. And, you know, it is tricky with state constitutions though, because they change 
they, they can be changed much more easily, as you know. Some can, some can't. They have different provisions. We just had four amendments on the ballot that actually failed in West Virginia. So my book could be printed without <laughs> worrying whether there's going to be an amendment, but they're definitely more fluid, which makes it perfect, frankly, for an online source. I've just You just inspired me to go to the website and check out the West Virginia Constitution. I'm looking at the free speech language. No law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press shall be passed, but the legislature may by suitable penalties restrain the publication or sale of obscene books, or papers, or pictures, and provide the punishment of libel and defamation of character and for the recovery of civil action by the aggrieved party of suitable damages for such libel and defamation. So interesting that those exceptions are spelled out. would love to know when that provision was passed mm -hmm. and how it's been interpreted, as well as the preamble, which I can't resist uh, reading before. Uh, All men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights of which when they enter in a state of society, they cannot by any compact deprive or divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. And that language is taken almost exactly from the Virginia Bill of Rights as preamble of 1776 and is the subject of, of that I delve into in this new book I have coming out about the pursuit of happiness. Oh. Ooh, that was very well done. That was very well done. Um, well, well, we are, we, we are, we did get birth from Virginia, as you know, and so we do have a few Virginia-isms in our, uh, in our constitution, our Civil War era constitution, uh, but talk more about your new book. So, during the COVID quarantine, I decided to read the books that inspired Thomas Jefferson to use his famous language about the pursuit of happiness. So I read these books over COVID and what I found came as a revelation. Most of them contain the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, and they define happiness in a very different way than we do today. For these great ancient philosophers, happiness meant not feeling good, but being good, not pursuing pleasure, but pursuing virtue. And even more, by virtue, they defined it in a very particular way that the classical uh, understanding of virtue meant using your powers of reason to moderate or temper your unreasonable passions or emotion, basically achieving self-control, self-mastery, character improvement, and being a good person. So that's what the book is. It was just a really meaningful series of reading projects. So it ends with a pay-in to reading, and that's the book, and I can't wait to, to share it. Well, I can't wait to see it. And what a what an inspiration. What a, you know, I'm fascinated, frankly, by the things that folks took up during the pandemic, you know, where we had this moment of uh, compelled pause, for lack of a better word, where we all got to step back uh, in one way or the other and maybe look at things through a slightly different lens. So I'm excited about it. How about you, Rhonda? No, I mean, that sounds like right up our alley. So I know it, like we'll be standing. She may have been it. taking notes as the book. She may be ordering them on Amazon yeah, while we're say, talking. Yeah. Oh. If it's a pre-order, then we're like already there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well... Uh, it is now time. Rhonda, do you have any other questions or can we? I'm good. 
wind up, begin to wind up. We have a little tradition at the end of our podcast called the lightning round. And this is where we give quick, relatively quick, sometimes we're not quick, answers to questions that may or may not have anything to do with our work or today's topic, but are just fun. So if you're game, we'd love for you to participate, Jeff. <laughs> We'd love to. Okay, it. so we'll, we won't make you go first. So we'll answer in the questions in this order. I'll ask the questions and then we'll go Rhonda, Jeff, and then me. And our first question, which is on topic, <laughs> uh, limiting your response to justice is no longer serving on the court. Who is your favorite former justice of the Supreme Court of the United States? Rhonda. So I feel like it's, it's, I wanted to go with something more unusual, but I'm going to have to go with Justice Scalia in part only because, and I, I may have told you this before, Beth, is that I was able to have some personal visit time with him and we bonded over being former law professors before becoming justices and what that experience was like. And so tremendous respect for him in many ways, but that sort of personal bonding, I think cements him, you know, for me. Jeff, how about you? Jeff? Well, if I guess if I have to pick, it would be Justice Louis Brandeis. I do have a picture of him behind me at home, the Andy Warhol image of him, which is so powerful. And he's just such a hero. I wrote a biography of him. He's the great opponent of the curse of bigness, the greatest defender of individual liberty in the states of his laboratories of democracy since Thomas Jefferson, author of the greatest free speech opinion, I think, of the 20th century, Whitney versus California, and the foe of concentrated power in economics or government. So he's a hero, but I can't just pick one. And I would also have to add the great Justice Ginsburg, RBG. I had the privilege of writing a book with her called Conversations with RBG, where she allowed me to collect our conversations over the years. And uh, it was just a great privilege of my life to know her. And she is got to be one of the great uh, justices in all of history. So Brandeis and Justice Ginsburg are my choices. Well, we can certainly allow moderate exception and let you have two, of course. And so mine is Sandra D. O'Connor first. Did enjoy that book very much, but I tend to share with her, although I never got to meet her, I've never have met her. I tend to share with her a, a really practical approach to this job with no less appreciation for the highly intellectual, very important gravity of the work. I just loved how she brought her legislative, although I don't have any legislative experience, but her you know, sort of sense to to the dynamic of the Supreme Court. And, you know, I think she, her, and she talked about it, you know, it highlights the very sort of human side of what we do, uh, whether it's five of us in West Virginia or seven or nine, you know, we can all sit back and read the books and know what the cases say, but it really comes down to forging the decisions in a human way. And I just really respect her highly honed skills at doing that. So she is my favorite, but it's evolved over time. Um, I've kind of been all over the place, but second question, what is or was your favorite law school class to teach and why, Rhonda? Oh, that was a hard one. So just so you know that I came from law school background um, before becoming a judge and so from academia. I think 
so I had to go back. I think my favorite was I taught one of the healthcare classes I taught was about emerging healthcare legal ethical issues. That was a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed the students like learning the emerging law, but also really having to think about the ethical implications um, of where healthcare was going and with the law sort of component. So I think that was probably one of my favorite classes to sort of combine those issues. So what about you, Jeff? Well, I have taught just two law school classes during my long time teaching, and that's constitutional law and criminal procedure. And I love both of them, but of course I would have to choose constitutional law because that's my great passion. And it's such a joy to teach it. And I'm teaching it. We're about to start class uh, next week. And every time I start, I feel lucky because there's so much to learn when you study the constitution. So I asked this, or I put this question in the lightning round because I want to know what your answers were. I have never been a law school professor, and so I had I don't have a favorite class to teach. But if I did, I think I would love to go back to some of my my practice background, which was in labor and employment law. There's a lot of really interesting stuff there that I could geek out on as a professor. So if they ever asked me to teach a seminar, I would do it. With a close second being state constitutions, I secretly harbor a desire to start a state constitutions class a la Chief Judge Sutton. I am a, Judge, a Jeff Sutton fangirl. I've said it before. So I would I would start that class at WVU uh, if I could. So they would question- in a heartbeat. <laughs> Any law school will take, uh, trust me, they'll take you in a heartbeat. <laughs> Question three, since we know Jeff's a podcaster, as well as he's talked about, um, the center does uh, an array of podcasts, and many of those he hosts. What is everyone's, oh, name one of your go-to podcasts in your lineup, Rhonda? Yeah, so I have a lot, but I went to, and I think I've talked about it before, but um, one of my go-to is because it's really short is Grammar Girl. It is 20 minutes and it's quick and it's a grammar tip and you're just in and out 20 minutes can be anywhere. And so I'm just, I'm a Grammar Girl. Grammar Girl, Jeff. Grammar girl. Jeff? <laughs> I, I, I would say my favorite treadmill podcast at the moment is Desert Island Discs. It's the old BBC show that ran for 40 years. I don't know if it's still going, but you can just hear the all these heroes, um, musicians and composers and artists and so forth uh, being interviewed by these brilliant interviewers. I, I love it. Uh, and mine, I'm going to take a weird turn. I listen to a lot of, uh, well-being is something that's important to me. And I listen to a lot of health kind of oriented podcasts but one that I have found that is wildly entertaining for me and probably 10 other people at most um, is a little golf podcast because I'm a, a frustrated golfer called Chasing Scratch. It's two kind of millennial guys talking about how frustrating it is to try to achieve a 0.0 a .0 handicap, which sounds really stupid even as I'm saying it, but it is one of my go-to. They're, they're very entertaining and it is completely unrelated. It's a little bit of sort of not thinking about what we do every day for a few minutes uh, every other week or so. So that's mine for the moment. And question four, uh, if you were hosting a dinner party with us, Jeff or Jeff, if we were hosting you, what would you cook or serve? We've asked this one before, but I'll let, I'll let Rhonda start. 
Yeah, so I feel bad because I hosted Beth and her wonderful husband, Mike, recently, and I did not make this, but if time permitted, I would make homemade lasagna. But when you were here, I was so busy showing you Arkansas that I did not get to make you homemade lasagna. So I apologize, but I would love to have you guys to have that again. So Jeff, what would we be having with you? Well, I love to cook from the farmer's market. And right now peaches are in season. So some yummy peach tart or peach cobbler or peach crisp or something like that. Some yummy, yummy apples as well, um, and, and and apple tart or apple bread, but but something something fresh and in season that would be my dessert. Wow, I just made a peach crisp the other day. You're right, peaches are are it right now. Really, really tasty. That would be a good choice. Um, mine would be something vegetables. I'm a bit of a a vegetarian, I guess, and so I would probably make something. If you really wanted to have some fish or something, I'd probably add it on. But it would be something really creative with a great sauce, maybe like a Thai peanut something uh, or something really delicious. And then you could roll your eyes and drive through on the way home if it wasn't very good. But or at least our husbands would. Um, <laughs> that's right. Because <laughs> they would not approve. But that's what I would probably serve. So that is a wrap. Jeff, we cannot thank you enough for joining us on this and just giving, uh, first of all, the opportunity to meet you and to hear you talk with such enthusiasm and passion about something we love just as much, and that is the Constitution and history uh, and all of that. And so thank you once again for being here. We can't thank you enough. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thank you both so much for your Great work for calling attention to state constitutions and for inspiring people to learn about the constitution and much looking forward to our reconvening to put all those state constitutions online. Sounds wonderful. Sound, sounds like a plan. So that ends our, our first episode of the fourth season of Lady Justice Women of the Court. We'll be back again soon and I, we don't have any breaking news yet. But do stay tuned to upcoming episodes where we, uh, we anticipate some exciting news about the future of this wonderful podcast that we love. In the meantime, please follow us on social media, whatever it's called now, Twitter X, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite podcast app. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court, the only podcast with one retired and two sitting state Supreme Court justices. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or comment. Don't forget to subscribe and share our show with a friend of the genre. Remember, the opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time, have a very happy Constitution Day. And please, celebrate Constitution Week by looking up your state's constitution.